Chapter Ten of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Columbus and the Egg. Mueller returned to Inzersdorf about five o'clock that afternoon. He did a number of errands in Vienna, and among other things that he brought back with him was something to ensure his own safety. Years before, business had taken him to Marseilles and in an antiquary shop there he had found a sleeveless vest of fine steel mesh it was a close metal net of finest workmanship and covered the entire torso twice when out on dangerous errands muller had worn this vest as protection under his coat and it had served him well from the moment that he had seen the huge footprints in the soft earth outside the garden wall so near to his own habitation he had thought of this vest for he knew by the traces that the man he had surprised in the greenhouse was on his trail, might possibly know who he was. The enormous footprints told him also that the nightly visitor to the Erlock mansion was the unknown, who had committed the other crimes in the neighborhood, was the man with the black cord. The same huge footprints were found in the opened villa and around the spot where the more serious attack on the cattle dealer had taken place. This man was worth considering as a serious opponent. The veteran detective was sure of that, although he was not given to taking seriously any hint of danger to himself. Mueller felt also that it lay in his own interest to push the matter through as quickly as possible. But it was not easy, for he still did not know in which direction to make the advance. He still did not know where to look for the man of whom he had already made an enemy. His own position was a dangerous one, and Carl Tunner was in danger too for if this unscrupulous rascal realized that mr hartman was a detective he might easily imagine mr hartman's servant to be of the same calling muller decided that he would send carl away to a safer place anything new he asked the young man as the latter came to take his hat and overcoat tunner shrugged his shoulders i don't know whether something i saw today when i went out is still unknown to you he began you mean the big footprints outside the wall asked muller yes but i thought you'd probably seen them yourself and did you think anything else well i thought sir that you had better take double care not to meet this man again he might shoot with better luck next time you're right partly right but i may as well tell you it wasn't he who fired it was i unfortunately i didn't hit him it was courageous in you to come to my help although i'm afraid it rather interfered with the result of my investigation oh dear why didn't i stay where i was said carl i'm afraid i only put you into greater danger oh no i'm not so sure about that said muller kindly only i'm sorry that i shall have to send you away now because i might have found you useful for many things carl's eyes opened wide in alarm you're going to send me away oh why oh please forgive me for my stupidity don't send me away i won't go i'll stay somewhere near you for it's my fault that you are in danger now and how about you do you think this murderer will spare you either now that he knows you belong to me Carl's face paled. The thought had not occurred to him. Then he said in a lower tone, "'Is that the reason you're sending me away?' Mueller nodded. The young man's fine eyes flashed fire. "'I shan't go,' he cried. "'I'm not afraid. And if anything did happen, what would it matter about me?' Mueller held out his hand. "'Very well, then. We'll fight together,' he said. "'But you must not go unarmed now. Do you know how to use a revolver?' "'Oh, yes.' Mueller opened his trunk, took out a pistol, and handed it to Carl with a box of ammunition. "'It's a six-shooter and every chamber loaded,' he said. "'Of course you understand that you're only to use it in extreme need. And now that's settled. But you look as if you wanted to ask a question. Well, what is it?' 
Mueller sat down comfortably, lit a cigar, and offered Carl one. "'You said last night the man was partly disguised,' began young Tunner timidly. "'All I could see was that he had a hood drawn over his head.' "'Quite right. But you only saw him in the darkness. I saw him for a moment in the light of my lantern. His cloak was brownish. I don't know how long it was, because the light fell upon the upper part of his body only. The hood was stiff, much higher than they usually are, and fitted so close to the head that there wasn't a wrinkle in it. I did not see his face, but I knew from the look of the hood at the back that it must close altogether, or partially in front. He is masked, therefore, and his hood is responsible for part of his unusual height. That's the reason why I told you that you need not bother about very tall men any more. His hood had one other peculiarity also. What is it? Please tell me. It was cut out over the ears. The man must be able to hear well. It may possibly have left his mouth free also. Or did his voice sound muffled? I don't think so, but I couldn't really tell. You couldn't? Oh, well, you'll learn in time. We can't expect to know everything all at once. Now tell me, what were you doing with yourself today? Carl's report was explicit, but contained very little of value. He had been talking with the people of the village about the various mysterious occurrences, but what he had heard were garbled, incoherent accounts. He met the gardener Till and invited him to drink. Fortunately, Till had never seen Carl, for the young man's few visits to his mother had taken place after nightfall, and she herself always let him in and out. He had quite a conversation with the gardener, chiefly about Mr. Erlock and his disappearance, but as far as he could see there was nothing of value in what he had heard. He didn't tell me anything new, concluded Carl. The man was most interested in the doors that were locked from the inside, and in the three underscored words in the book. Oh, yes, and he mentioned the fact that the candle had spattered so and was surprised that it hadn't set anything on fire, because there was a heavy wind that night, and the burning candle was near the open window. Why, what's the matter, Mr. Mueller? Mr. Hartman, I mean, said Carl hastily. Mueller had jumped up from his chair and was pacing the room with long strides. Back and forth he went two or three times, then stopped in front of the astonished Carl and asked, "'It was the last window he spoke of? The window near which the table stood? This window was half opened?' he said. "'Yes, that was the window, but it wasn't half open. How was it? The right pane of the outside window and the left one of the inside were open. "'Oh, that was it,' murmured Mueller, and repeated once more. "'Oh, that was it.' A smile flashed across his quiet face, and he walked through the room once again. Then he stopped in front of one of the windows and stood for a long time looking out on the dreary stretch of country beyond, over towards the old trees of the Laxenburg Avenue, to where, beyond them, the pointed dark roof of the greenhouse rose amid the foliage. It stood there, quiet and defiant, as if daring the watcher to penetrate its secrets. And beyond it the sky was a colorless gray. Carl, further back in the room, stood looking at his employer with a growing awe and admiration. He was such a quiet, unassuming little man, in mien and bearing, and yet how quickly he could make himself the master of any situation. Carl was learning much in these days, and he was changing rapidly from the superficial, pleasure-loving youth he had been. Finally, Mueller turned back to the room, his face calm as ever. All trace of excitement into which the mention of the window had thrown him was gone. He went to the cupboard and took out a book. "'Here's something to read.' he said, handing it to Carl. Did you bring in supplies for supper? Yes, sir. Well, then, go out into your own room and make yourself comfortable. I shall be busy now for a while, and then I'm going over to the house. When Carl had left him, Mueller sat down to another careful study 
of the official report of the first police visit to the Erlock house, also to a study of the ground plan of the mansion. Toward seven o'clock he joined the Plone family at supper and spent a pleasant evening with them. "'Will you take up your studies again tomorrow?' asked the manager when Hartman finally rose to go. "'Oh, indeed I must,' was the answer. "'Because, you see, I ran away today, but I don't come to Vienna often, and I always have so much to do when I do come.' "'Well, the longer you stay with us, the better we will like it,' said Mrs. Plone. Hartman bent over her hand politely and then left the house. The next day he appeared in Bower's office promptly at ten o'clock. He was anxious to learn about the bookkeeping of the factory, about the rates of wages, and the method of payment. All this information was given him with a pedantic thoroughness which made him wonder more and more at what Plone had told him about Bower's sentimental proclivities. The bookkeeper, thorough though he was, was quite satisfied with the intelligent interest shown by his listener. No one except Carl Tunner knew that this ardent student of brickmaking had already passed several hours before the dawn in the greenhouse. Carl had stood at the window of the pavilion with an excellent field glass and watched every moving thing that came within the range of his vision. Finally, he saw his master coming from the direction of the Erlock property and breathed relieved. Mueller seemed in a very good humor and asked for a cup of tea. It had been Hartman's wish that his own servant should make the morning tea or coffee for both of them in the pavilion, and Carl had proved himself quite a clever cook. It was a dainty tray before which Mueller sat down early this morning. The detective was in an excellent humor, and he did not seem to mind the fact that the eggs were a little harder than he usually liked them. Carl was quite upset over his carelessness in the cooking. Oh, never mind it, said Mueller. You see, I'm taking the second one already. He put it in his egg-cup and was about to strike the top with his knife. Suddenly he changed his mind, took up the egg again, and asked, "'Can you make an egg stand on its end?' Carl Tunner was astonished. He was reckless enough himself, but he was struck dumb with admiration at the man who could joke about trifles while he knew himself to be at the mercy of an unusually clever criminal. "'Oh, yes,' said the young man with a smile. "'I can do that. It's easy enough.' Just break the top of the shell, and the egg will stand upright without any trouble. That's it exactly, my young friend, replied Mueller merrily. And you know also that Columbus was the first person to do this simple trick? Yes. And do you know that that is why we speak about the egg of Columbus, when we mean that a clever brain, a brain such as the man we are looking for must have, manages to accomplish the most apparently difficult feat with the simplest methods? Yes, I've always understood that's what it meant. "'Well, my young friend, there are several sorts of Columbus eggs,' laughed Mueller. "'And now you can give me another cup of tea. It's unusually good this morning.'" End of chapter 10